Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me coming to you from my house in Brooklyn because it's still a pandemic. It's the day after the election. I'm not sure when you're going to listen to this. Hopefully right around the same time because I've got Olivia Nuzzi, New York Magazine's Washington correspondent, who's had a week. I'm glad she's made time for me. She was on the uh, on the Trump campaign earlier in the week. She was uh, on Air Force Two uh, getting getting scolded, I think, by uh, Vice President Pence's staff uh, Monday night. And then last night she was hanging out with Roger Stone live on on video. Did I imagine that? No, that was real. That was real. Welcome, Olivia. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, you are one of my favorite Trump land, Trump ecosystem correspondents. Um, we're recording this Wednesday afternoon, mid afternoon. Um, what's your best sense of of how the Trump entity feels right now at this moment? You know, it's interesting. I, I was just talking about this with uh, with my editor, like earlier this week and for, for the last several weeks, people in Trump land have been clearly like thinking about a post-Trump world and uh, plotting for how to recover their reputations after Trump leaves office. And so I've been getting a lot of texts like from officials in the White House or campaign people saying like, oh my God, I have to get drinks when this is over. So much gossip and uh, trying to kind of make nice and mm-hmm. um, talking about how they just can't wait for this to be over. And uh, they only have X many more days that they have to live with this as if it's not a choice, right? Um, and then suddenly last night when things started to look less certain in Joe Biden's favor, everyone fell silent. And there seemed to be, I was interpreting that silence as being like uh, a recognition that, oh shit, um, maybe this won't be over. But they weren't, I told you sewing. They weren't. (laughs) No, no, it was like, most of the people that I talk to, I mean, you have to realize that when people are talking to me, it's because they either don't want, um, they don't want the press to think that they are, happy to be there. They're there by choice. They want to seem sane. They know that like life is long and life in Washington is longer and that there will be life after Trump whenever that comes. So when people are dishing on background to me, it's never like to give me Trump campaign talking points, right? Right. It's it's like self-preservation and, you know, gossiping about their colleagues and and trying to make themselves look better. Um, And some people are genuinely conflicted in fairness about being there, but suddenly they fell silent. And I just was thinking, oh my God, these people must suddenly realize that it might not be over and that they 
what they thought they had to do to preserve their reputations and continue to have relationships with the media. Maybe they were misguided and it, it seemed like there was a lot of, oh shit. Yeah. So not, not, no. <laughs> not like, oh great, we're winning. Like, oh shit, no, we're no, winning. Like, oh God, we're winning. Um, and then, you know, I, I was talking to a, a senior Republican official just a few minutes ago um, who was telling me that, you know, they've admitted it's very hard to see a path forward um, at the, at the time that we're talking right now, who knows what, the world will look like by the time people are listening to this, but that there's no path forward. Um, it's getting less and less likely. And that they said, quote, I think he'll scream and shout for a while and then give in, uh, meaning Trump. But I thought the most interesting that the senior Republican, the most interesting thing the senior Republican official said was, quote, in a way, this is the best possible outcome for him. He dramatically exceeded expectations. He can claim that he would have won easily without COVID. And most important, now he doesn't have to do the work of being president anymore. Right. I mean, it seems in some way like a replay of 2016, right, with a different ending, which he didn't expect to get elected. You could right. see the shock on his face when he got elected. I was going to ask you about sort of the jumping up and down part. So as as we're recording this, maybe Rudy Giuliani is already in Philadelphia, but mm-hmm. the whole coterie of, of Trump people are there giving a press conference. They've already mm-hmm. announced we're going to challenge various states. Right. How much of that seems like we think we could actually turn this around slash win versus this is performative. This is a thing that we have to do on our way out. I don't know. You know. It's hard to tell. They're doing this press conference. It's Rudy Giuliani, Corey Lewandowski, Laura Trump, and I think Eric Trump. That's um, a tweet and, that I saw, like a Jackson 5, but for the yeah, Trump yeah, family. Yeah. And uh, you know, they're doing this in, in, um, in Pennsylvania. They're, they're declaring victory in Pennsylvania, Bill Stepien said on a call with reporters. Um, they're, they're trying to start legal battles in, in different states. I don't know. I mean, I think... Trump was never going to, even if it was a a blue wave, right? Trump was never just going to shrug and say, well, you know, we gave it our best and like politely leave office. Um, So it's not, it's not uh, shocking that they're reacting this way, but I don't know. I guess the question is how long, if it really does start to seem like there's no path at all for him, um, there's no argument at all that he can challenge anything. uh, How long will they drag this out? So we're going to engage in speculation. So all the necessary caveats. Um, if if Trump doesn't win and he can't win in court and he just can't win, how do you think he spends the remaining time between now and in mid January? I don't know. You know, I've, I've talked to people before who say that he already. Uh, one former senior White House official told me. Um, I made some comment like, oh, is he going to be so happy to return to New York, right? Because he, it's not like he likes being in Washington. He's a creature of habit. Maybe it feels like home now at the White House. Um, but he's an old guy who always worked and lived in the same building in New York. And, you know, he's a, a creature of habit. Um, and they said that, no, he was going to be returning to Florida. He was going to live there, actually, at, at Mar-a-Lago. Right, he's already announced he's become a, a, yeah, a Florida yeah. resident. Um, I, I don't know. I, I never, I don't think that the rallies will ever stop. I think it's going to be like Cher's farewell tour. He's just going to keep rallying mm-hmm. periodically, um, until, you know, until the end of time. And I imagine, I imagine it'll be a bit like he was in like 2012 or 2013 or 2014 before he was running formally for office when he would just kind of behave frankly a lot like he does now where he would shit talk people on Twitter. He would right. do little videos, 
Um, in some ways, because he doesn't really perform the job of being president anyway, I don't think that things will be that different, even if he's like geographically in a different place. I've, I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, like in 2016, there's this uh, story floating that they're going to create a Trump media company. And, right. and it sort of makes sense, right? He gets to perform like the president without having to get, you know, uh, deal with actually being president. Mm -hmm. I do wonder from his side if sort of the the fun will go out of it now that people, he can't, she can't own the libs, right, with a tweet because he's no longer president. He's just a retired person. And, mm -hmm. I'll, and on the flip side, whether his audience wants to see someone who's who's lost. I don't know. I, you know, I think that he has never, he's never really behaved like he won anything, right? He's always behaved like he is still locked in a fight. To He's aggrieved constantly. Yeah, he, he likes to have an enemy. Uh, when it wasn't Hillary Clinton, it was still Hillary Clinton, right? He's still talking about Hillary Clinton. It's always been the media. Um, it's the deep state. It's whoever he's decided. It's like the most effective um, narrative enemy for him to have at that time. Um, and so I don't really think like in terms of rhetoric, that anything's going to change that much. And, and his supporters talked about him, even like right after the 2016 election, it was never like, oh, you know, we're winners now and like, fuck you guys, you're losers. It was still, they still talked about him like he was an underdog and like he uh, he was being, you know, kept from yeah. being a winner somehow. So I, I don't really, I don't think it would really matter if um, to them, or to, to him in terms of how he speaks about himself. Yeah, I mean, we've never seen yeah. it, right? We've never seen an ex-president sort of with a public profile. They all sort of, by tradition, right. sort of step aside for the most part. Right. I mean, I don't think he's going to be like Jimmy Carter retreating to a, a peanut farm and, and teaching right. Bible study on Sundays, right? Yeah. Is there um, going to be a book deal? We haven't heard that conversation yet. Who's going to publish it? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think... You could self-publish with Jeff Bezos. Like Don Jr., maybe he'll he'll self-publish and and you know make a killing. I don't know. Um, but and then there are all sorts of legal questions too about about whether or not he's going to be uh, prosecuted and, yes. and what the status of the various investigations uh, at the federal and state levels. Well, the is. nice thing about the internet is you can run it from. You don't have to be in the United States to run an internet company. <laughs> um, What's your sense of sort of how the Republican Party is going to either stand with him for a period or disentangle them? Obviously, they want Trump voters. It's been clear since, right, since he ran that they don't want any part of Trump. It's clear the entire presidency that they're doing it with disdain. They're very happy to have him because they've they've won the courts. They've won mm -hmm. a lot of the regulatory battles. How do you see themselves sort of trying to unwind themselves from Trump while keeping the Trump voter? I, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm waiting for Lindsey Graham to call me back right now because that's the same question that I have basically is at what point is he going to kind of like unmaga himself? Because he's now safe for six years. Um, he, it worked his right. plan, plan to like debase himself and, um, and manage to, to get I successfully debased myself. <laughs> right. um, and I'm very interested to see these people who are now safe and, and when the threat of being like cannibalized by Trump is removed, when he can't heckle you out of office anymore, what happens? And I, I think a lot of Republicans are going to probably, if, if Trump loses, right, still up in the air right now when we're, when we're taping this, but um, I think a lot of Republicans will pretend like Trump never happened and, and will act like they never 
stood with him and, and like they were forced to do that and Wolf refused to answer questions about him. Um, and I think that a lot of Republicans uh, will be happy to help them forget. Mm-hmm. Um, people have pretty short memories and uh, and I think that's going to work in in favor of, of establishment Republicans who lived through this and, and allowed this to happen. Um, and then I think, but those like fringe contingents that are, you know, power, empowered all throughout the country, these QAnon candidates and moral yep. loomers of the world, they're still going to exist. But I think it's probably going to, among Republicans, I think it's probably going to return to kind of the way things were in like 2014, 2015, where, you know, you've got people who are kicked out of CPAC for being too fringe, who in the Trump era were totally mainstreamed, right? Like the Ann cultures of the world. I think that there will be kind of a slow return to quote unquote normalcy, where maybe the leaders of the party will be people like Nikki Haley or Josh Hawley, uh, Christy Nome, and there will be kind of a party-wide effort to suffer amnesia about the Trump years. I was about to say, I'm looking forward to watching that, but I'm not looking forward to watching that. Um, I do want to talk. I see it happening now already, right? Yeah. Where, like, the Mitch McConnell's in the world. Um, well, so I was talking with Matt Iglesias this morning about the idea of, you know, there was this, everyone heaping derision on the polls and along and they're con- conflating polls with media. And mm-hmm. there'll be a lot of stories about how the media got it wrong. But Everyone was looking at some version of the same polls, and that very much includes the Republican establishment, which was distancing themselves in the last few weeks before Trump mm-hmm. because they saw polling that saw him losing. Right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It wasn't a media conspiracy to sort of, uh, uh, well, to to confuse people. No, I mean, I. What's that? It's like never attribute to uh, malice. What could be explained by incompetence? Mm-hmm. I think there is going to have to be a reckoning about polling and how it works. And I'm certainly no expert on that. But when you look at the fact that like not a single poll in Maine had Susan Collins ahead, um, obviously something went wrong there. Um, even if Trump ends up losing and, and the national polls end up being basically correct, um, there still needs to be uh, a reckoning about how we conduct these these polls. And, and I think you know, for me, it's more like the fact that you were you are an idiot rube if you question whether or not the polls might be correct. Like a, a friend of mine, Sean McCreesh, writes for the New York Times. He did a piece, I think, last week in Pennsylvania about whether or not the polls were correct. He talked to a lot of Trump supporters in his hometown. And he was just dragged for it by mm-hmm. you know, kind of mainstream data-inclined journalists. And I think that's a mistake. I think kind of the lack of humility in the coverage is a mistake um, and I think going forward, um, people are going to have to deal with the fact that, like, sometimes you might be wrong. In Maine, it was wrong. Um, in other states, it looks like it was wrong. And maybe we don't know everything. Yes, I do predict we will still have polls four years from now. But um, I also predict I, we'll keep talking. And that's my terrible segue so we can have an ad. We'll be right back <laughs> with Olivia. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're still here with Olivia. Who Did you get any sleep? You got some sleep. You got oh, some yeah. sleep last night. Yeah, I slept from like six or seven until like... Oh, you went, you went the whole night? Yeah. Were you fine? Were you... You you had to right, or could you not fall asleep if you if you wanted to fall asleep? I just wanted to know what the fuck was happening, but I, I should have just, I should have, I should have had a plan. So, <laughs> speaking of knowing what the fuck was happening, you wrote a great story this summer that was part like a palace intrigue story about what was going on at the top of the Trump campaign and Brad Parscale's ouster and who was to blame and who who was on what side, and then the other half was the real part that really stuck with me where you got in your car and you drove around Pennsylvania looking for the famed Trump ground game and you could not find it. You found literally empty offices and rallies that didn't exist and Mm -hmm. meetups that weren't happening. Um, And you painted a very convincing portrait of a just total shit show. Mm -hmm. After you reported and wrote that, did you have any belief that Trump could even be competitive? I mean, to me, it's the, the tone of that piece was this thing is going nowhere. But it also reminded me of 2016 watching, you know, the RNC with Scott Baio as a featured speaker. Like, that can't possibly work. Right. I mean, in 2016, it was not exactly like a fine-tuned machine either, right? right? We had no, it was not a professional operation. They had like no staff. They had no fucking clue how to, what a field operation even was, never mind like how to run one. Um, They didn't hire, in 2016, they didn't hire Bill Stepien to handle the field operation until like very, very late, I think like August. Um, So it's not like I thought that that was the only way um, that someone could be successful. And also, we were in the middle, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And so it was comparing the Trump campaign operation and door knocking and kind of traditional GOTV efforts to the Biden campaign having digitized everything and campaigning as if there was a pandemic. Um, and so I didn't really know what it meant, but what was interesting to me was just the huge like disparity between what the Trump campaign was saying about this amazing ground game. Right. And the reality, which was like a couple of interns in a local Republican office outside Pittsburgh, not even realizing that they had advertised a like MAGA meetup at a coffee shop. And by the way, like that coffee shop in the piece, it was not like the type of place where you would host a MAGA meetup. They had like oat milk lattes and like vegan pastries. And like the girl who answered the door was like a cute goth girl with a nose ring. And I was like, is there a Trump campaign meetup here? And she was like, what? Um, I hope not. It wouldn't have made sense anyway. Um, but it was more just like, I couldn't figure out, I had a lot of Democrats ask me afterwards, like, what was that about? Is it that they are actively lying and trying to deceive people about these numbers? Because there were stories, like I think Politico ran a story, like the Trump campaign knocks on its millionth door. And it's like, are we sure? Like, did anyone fact check that? But that's what the campaign was saying. Or is it just total incompetence? they don't even realize that they have no fucking clue how to run a field operation. And I think it was probably like a combination of both. I think they just were all too happy to send out these press releases claiming that they had done this amazing work uh, 
in the field and, and had all right. these army of volunteers, but nobody was actually checking to make sure that the calls were really being made or that the doors were really being knocked on. You know? and, that, and that confirmed all my priors, right, which I'd had for four years, which is this is an incompetent group of people who are sort of stumbling forward in some combination of luck and bigotry and mm-hmm. and misogyny is sort of allowing them to, su- to succeed, um, but it can't continue. Um, and then flash forward to more recently, they're doing these large rallies, mm-hmm. um, which are a lot of people. They are at least able to organize, the get the people there, if not get them out on the buses. Um, and I was spending some time on, on sort of digital Magaland the last few days. And, and a big talking point was, look at these rallies. These rallies are meaningful. And this is also mm-hmm. something that we did in 2016. And you guys ignored it then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were on the road. You were at these rallies. Did mm-hmm. that signal anything to you that he was able to summon thousands of people in a cornfield? Well, he always is, right? Like, he is a fascinating person. He is like the Grand Canyon as a man. Like, people are excited to go and be among like-minded people and experience a sense of camaraderie. And, and I, you know, I was at a Trump rally the other day. I think I was in North Carolina. Um, and it occurred to me that, like, the experience of going to a Trump rally for these people who are not always old, but like it's a definitely a, a very, very white crowd that's cute mm-hmm. older. And I kept thinking like they're really there for, mo- for the most part, like listening to the greatest hits of the last half century, like listening to, uh, you know, the village people and Elton John and the Rolling Stones and uh, Celine Dion and the song from Cats. Yeah, like, everything sort of stops in 1985, basically. Yeah, and like it's um, – that's how you spend your time at a Trump rally. You stand in line, you talk to other Trump supporters, you go and you wait and you listen to this very loud music for like two hours. And then he comes out and he talks from anywhere from like, you know, an hour to two hours. And maybe you start to leave while he's speaking to avoid the traffic on the way home. Um, But it's really like, I just kept thinking if there were more free concerts available throughout the country for like old people to get together and like, uh, dance and hang out with each other would Trump rallies have become such a thing. It's really just an activity for them. It's um, the fourth place. You, you posted a video from that. You, you wrote about, uh, the, you wrote this great scene piece about uh, the flag falling down from the crane at that rally and you posted mm-hmm. a little video and I could hear in the video him doing a stump speech mm-hmm. that I don't follow him professionally but I've heard a dozen times. Yeah, yeah and I, but in terms of like whether or not it means anything, you know, 2016 was the first presidential campaign I covered and so I was taught to defer to the experts in, in that race. And I tried to do that. And I remember it being kind of like a considered a very silly thing to care about the crowd size. And like Hillary Clinton was not trying to stage rallies at like monster truck arenas like Donald Trump was. So it's not like I could say then, well, she can't fill the same space that he can or she can't generate that level of excitement because they were just doing two completely different things. She was like giving a policy speech in like a a small theater in New York, right? He was giving a insane rally at an arena that like had just hosted literally a monster truck rally in like Biloxi, Mississippi. Two very different strategies. And in the end, I didn't really think that it mattered that much because the popular vote was what it was in 2016, and the polls were basically correct when it came to the popular vote. Um, I didn't really know what to make of that kind of anecdotal evidence of enthusiasm. And the same is true this cycle, where Joe Biden was not trying to hold events. He was 
largely, as Trump liked to point out, confined to his basement, mm-hmm. the, the pandemic that was partly Trump's fault. <laughs> like he, there was nothing to compare it to. So I would get all these messages, like there was a huge crowd and a huge line in North Carolina um, this weekend. And I had a, a democratic activist message me like, oh no, you know, what, what do you think? Sh- should I be worried? And I was, I have nothing to compare this to on the left. Yeah. Like I have no idea if you should be worried or not because Joe Biden has made zero attempts to meet with large groups of people in the last eight months. My, my pet theory is the people, especially who are voting for Trump in 2020 are way more committed than they were in four years, in part because they sort of know that they're being shamed when they when they make that choice, um, and so they're they're that much more sort of uh, dug in. They're they you know I've got some people in my family who are this way, and they just won't won't broach it at all. And sort of they know that that committing to Trump is sort of a commitment. Um, and that makes them that much more likely to go see the man or whatever. Now, I could be 100% full of shit, but that is my pop psychology theory. I mean, what we know about the results as we're, we're taping this right now is that that seems basically correct, right? Yay, me. People, people, with the exception of, of what the story looks like out of Arizona right now, um, which at the time that we're speaking, uh, I think the AP and Fox News have both called Arizona for Biden. Yeah, there's some wavering, right? Yeah, um, but that's that looks to be the case that people voted as they did in 2016. Um, just some more people voted and yeah. Trump supporters voted the same way that they did in the States that he won in 2016 with the exception right. of, uh, of a few of them. We don't have results yet out of some of the Midwest States or out of Pennsylvania, but yeah, it seems like just kind of the trends of like negative partisanship and, and the, it's it's two countries as as it's people. definitely two countries um, and, and it's tribal. It just seems like if you if you're doing it if you're if you're voting for Trump in 2020, you know what you're getting into. And four years ago, you could have been maybe been doing it for the lulls or, or as a lark. Yeah, I mean, but the idea that there's like a shy Trump voter, which is what all of the Trump campaign surrogates and what Donald right. Trump they've been trying to say what they said in 2016. I don't know. I don't. That still doesn't seem true to me. Like even if the polls are really off in certain places, no. When you go to a Trump rally, certainly they're not shy. But even I, I drove across the country um, for the second time in the last few months last week, and like the way that it was just so stunning to me that you're in a rural area, maybe an hour outside of a city, and it's just like Trump flags everywhere and like they're loud flags right like I, I asked my boyfriend I was like did Obama have flags like it just occurred to me like there was no Obama flag there was like art for Obama Trump had the, he had the best flag it was a Trump 2020 enough bullshit was it enough with the bullshit what was I it? think um yeah stop with the bullshit or enough with the bullshit. something like that I, I, yeah. I would put that flag on my house if if I didn't want to get kicked out of the country. You know, there are loud flags. And then, like, you've got the American flag, like, doctored for, for Blue Lives Matter, which yep. I think is, like, insane, by the way, to, like, and unpatriotic to alter the American flag to fit your fucking yes. political views. But anyway, like, and then you, you drive 30 more minutes and you get to, you know, right outside of Dallas or something. And it's just Biden, Biden, Biden everywhere. And it's, like, and that trend just continues from, like, Nevada through Arizona, through Texas, through upstate New York. Yeah, it's everywhere where it's just kind of like these pockets, like the, the country's just divided like silos. And it's it's really um I don't know that people are shy. Like I don't think and I think in twenty twenty more than in twenty sixteen certainly, 
people don't seem shy um, because they know that at least half the country basically agrees with them if they support Trump. So I, I don't, maybe they, maybe there are some people who fear just within their social circle uh, pushback or fear, um, you know, the, uh, the Antifa mobs that uh, Fox News is always talking about, but I don't know. I don't encounter a lot of people who are reluctant to talk about the way that they that they vote. They seem loud and proud. Um, what happened on Air Force Two that, that got you in trouble? What did you do? I, um, I don't know. I mean, I so a pool report. Should I explain what that is? Please, is yes. A, I think half our, half our listeners will understand. And the other, I, half mean, I barely understand it. Um, so the a, a pool, a press pool, is basically like a protective thing that the um, it's it's to ensure transparency for the rest of the press corps. So like a small group of reporters, it's like on a rotating basis, is always with the president, the vice president. Joe Biden has a press pool. And do you volunteer to be in the press pool, or do you get assigned yeah, so, to be in the press pool? So um, New York Magazine. Um, I'm the first Washington correspondent that we have. And so in order for us, this is like really getting in the weeds. I'm like, yeah, the, do it. in order for us to like one day have a seat in the White House briefing room, I normally have to stand when I go there because we don't have a seat. Um, I have to be part of the pool. I have to volunteer for two years. To it's, do, like, it's like a frat pledge. I guess. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know. but I, no, Nor would I. I've only seen movies. I, I hear that. Um, and so I, I don't, I'm not part of like the president's pool rotation because that's after like this two-year period but anyway so I volunteered to be part of uh, Vice President Pence's pool on Monday because he had like this five or four stop swing through Pennsylvania and Michigan and I figured you know what better day the day before the election he's ending with two Trump rallies like I want to be there Um, and so I volunteered to travel with him and I was the designated print pooler so that means that I had to um, just send incremental updates throughout the day to the White House and to the press corps explaining like, um, you know, Air Force Two took off at this time, Pence waved, um, he didn't answer any questions, we landed at this time, this is what he said, shit like that. You're the eyes and ears of, uh, and you're kind of there in case something terrible happens. Something terrible happens and just there to provide like details and information. So I was just there to kind of say, like, this is what he's wearing. This is who he's with. You know, this was the... As an aside, I was looking at your, your pool reports, I, and I haven't seen that many, but you spent a, not a lot of time. You were definitely d- describing, like, Mrs. Pence's heels and someone else's sweater. Is that standard or is that just of interest to you? It's it's standard, like, with the First Lady, if there's a pool report on her, like, it's always, like, this is what she was wearing. It's by this designer. I did, like, um, Ivanka's pool a couple, I guess, maybe, like, a month or two ago, and a White House official... Unpro- I didn't ask, sent me the name of the designer of the dress that Ivanka was wearing. And like, I, hadn't, I hadn't asked. I didn't give a shit, but I was like, okay, I guess, like, sure. And so, like, I looked it up and saw it was, like, a $2,000 dress, and I put that in there. I don't think they were happy that I had, like, done... Don't like, put the it. price tag <laughs> in there, just the designer. But, um, yeah, just whatever. I don't know. It's like, you have one... I like doing it because it's, like, a creative writing assignment, which is where we get into the problem with that they had with my pool reports, but like, it's kind of, um, I really loved picture prompts in school, like on standardized tests or something, when you have to like, um, they'd show you a picture and you're supposed to like write a story based on the picture. And um, so I kind of treated it like that, where it's like, you have this one job, you don't have to write, like, you don't have to have a take, you don't have to like, it's fun. You get to just like describe what you see in like as much detail as you can muster. And so I love that. I thought it was fun. 
Um, but the problem started actually before we left Joint Base Andrews in the morning. Um, I when I got a COVID test at the White House, and then I showed up to Joint Base Andrews. And I, um, when we got on the plane, two of Pence's aides or three of Pence's aides took off their face masks as soon as we got on the plane. And I was like, what the fuck? Like Pence had a an outbreak, a COVID outbreak in his office like a week ago. Mm -hmm. um, so I noted that and I asked an aide if Pence had tested negative that morning. And they said that they would get back to me. And I just like put that in the pool report. And then as it turns out, like the vice president's office has some like policy that I'm unaware of um, where they just don't comment on whether or not he has tested negative. They decide they're only going to be commenting on if he tests positive. And I, I guess by saying that he, um, that they were going to get back to me about the test result, I forced them to go against their policy and say that he had tested negative, which they didn't want to do. So that's where things started to go south. They were like mad about that. And then you were doing reporting. <laughs> and then they told me that uh, the plane was off the record. And I was like, no, it's fucking not. I didn't agree to that. Also, the point uh, of you being there is to be on the plane, right? To say this is what's happening. Well, yeah. I mean, but like, I was like, what does that even mean? Is this like a Bermuda Triangle thing? Like the plane disappears like the second that we get on it? Like what? Like, I don't, I was very confused. At, like, what does that mean for the plane to be on the, off the record? And so I just like put that in the report, like explaining that like, it's not fucking, it's not off the record. I didn't agree that it was off the record. And um, that doesn't even, it wouldn't make sense. Like what, how would that work out? And that was when things like started to, I think, really sour for for the vice president's office and me they were very upset about that and then they told me that i made it up that um I, they like told me to like correct my pull report and like it's it got a little contentious but i thought things were going fine i thought i didn't think i was making any friends but i thought things were going fine and then um i continued to like write my pull reports and i started to get like a little um, it's boring. You know, you have no Wi-Fi on the plane. You're just kind of like being shuffled around to these different places, like into a motorcade, into a freezing rally, back on the motorcade. You sit on the tarmac, you wait for pens. And so I just started writing about like the existential dread and like not shit that like is normally in pool reports, but I thought it was fine. Like, yeah. whatever. Um, and then I... Made, then Karen Pence came back to the cabin in uh, on Air Force Two. This is like on our way to Michigan. And um, I noted it in the next pool report and I like described her in the cabin. Um, but I didn't put anything like negative or personal in there or anything. I thought it was fairly mm -hmm. benign and harmless. And the White House, I guess, freaked out and like she was really upset, I guess. And I was told that um, they were they wanted to remove me from the plane, and um, and you're in Michigan at this point. Yeah, well, I, there's no Wi-Fi, so I didn't yeah. realize they were mad at me until we landed. It's like a Justine Sacco situation, and like when we landed, and I, I had to deal with the fact that they were they were upset, and there was basically like an ultimatum where it was like I, you know, I, my job there was to represent the press corps, not right. to represent New York Magazine. My job was to file these full reports until we landed back at JBA, um, where it was like either you stop filing full reports and you can stay on the plane or you can file just like straight 
straightforward reports with no details, no color, or you will be ejected from the plane. And so and, you're you're in Kalamazoo or or Traverse City? No, we landed in Grand Rapids. It was like I think it was like 11 p.m. It was like 35 degrees. So your choice is comport or find your own way home from Michigan. And but we're like like on, there's no easy way out. That yeah. I, you know, it's like election eve. Um, I was on like no sleep. I mean, in retrospect, like maybe I should have made them kick me off. But like I felt like I had a responsibility to carry out the the task at hand for the for the pool. Um, and so I agreed to just like file these straight reports, which is, you know, allowing the White House to dictate the terms of the reporting, which is absurd. And um, unfortunately, the White House Correspondents Association did not put up a fight on on my behalf. And I'm, I'm like really pissed at them. Um, I think it's fucking ridiculous. And this is a recurring back, theme with the White House uh, Correspondents Association. When I landed back at JBA, um, I realized that the White House had not, uh, that they had censored me. They didn't send out the these two pool reports that they, or one pool report at that point that they disagreed with. And so when I was safely in my rental car, I was like, fuck it, it was like 4 a.m. And I just decided to write a final pool report that like explained that they censored me and that they threatened to throw me off the flight. Um, and then I sent it and they didn't, they didn't send out that pool report either, but the way that it works, the Correspondents Association, like foreseeing an outcome like this has made it so that when you, the reporter sends the pool report, it goes to everyone else in the pool, it goes to all the reporters. And the White House has like a separate list that they send it to you. So I don't know if that makes sense. Like yes. I get a full report twice. I get it once from the reporter and once from the White House. Once the, once the official but, version. Well, that's that's a yeah. lousy experience and a great story. Yeah, I mean, fuck the White House for censoring me, but also fuck the White House Correspondents Association, which I'm a part of. Like they did not defend me. They didn't put up a fight. And like they're allowing the White House to get away with censoring a reporter. I think it's bullshit. I was going to ask if you're going to do this again during the Trump administration. Oh, I'm going to volunteer. Yeah, okay. the next time that there is a trip, I will volunteer. Absolutely. I'm like waiting eagerly for uh, for to get guidance about the next uh, opportunity to do it. I want to hear that story too. One <laughs> last question for you. What did you and Roger Stone talk about last night? And why were you talking to Roger Stone on a live stream? Uh, I will I will convey some sentiments from within Voxland that they were like, <laughs> what is Olivia doing? Right. Look, Roger Stone has is Donald Trump's oldest advisor. I mean, literally, he's probably his oldest advisor age-wise, but he's also his oldest advisor. He has known him for since uh, 1982, something like that. He has been with him throughout his entire journey of deciding to run for president over those you know, two decades um, before he actually ran, or three decades. Um I wanted to get context from Roger to kind of zoom out and talk about the decision for him to run in 2016 and what that was like. I mean, he was his political advisor ahead of that election. This conspiratorial, crazy, appalling, often racist person, just because we don't like him and don't agree with him and think that he is appalling and all of those things doesn't mean that he does not have valuable insight about the person who is still right now the most powerful man. I guess the, the pushback on that could be, yeah, you got a source and you want to talk to people, you but you literally gave him a platform and you could just do that without I don't think it's letting a him spew. Oh, you know, I just I I can't I cannot agree with that as a reporter, right? I don't think that it is a platform. Like I don't think that that means that it is like granting him 
this, it's not like an endorsement to speak to someone, right? Mm -hmm. We have to interview people, even if we don't agree with them, if they have things of news value to say. And like, so my argument against that is like, I talked to him about the fact that Donald Trump didn't actually want to run for real for president in 2016. Like he wanted to go back to The Apprentice. But when that became, when that was no longer an option, because NBC separate ties with him over what he had to say in his announcement speech in 2015 about uh, immigrants, that was no longer an option. Mm -hmm. He had to continue running for president. Like, that is fascinating. Uh, I guess the other question I would have is, he's a fabulist, right? He's a, you know, he lies. So so even when you're, he's telling you a great story, who knows if it's true? I mean, it's how I feel about interviewing Donald Trump, right? Like, Donald Trump is a famous liar. Everyone who works with Donald Trump is a famous liar. But it, if we have opportunities, I, I would rather interview Roger Stone on the record when people can see it and hear it from themselves than do what other reporters do, which is interview him for some fucking reason on background uh, where he can lie and get away with it. And describe him as a Republican insider. And People can handle watching people and listening to people that they don't agree with. And I don't think that it is an endorsement to speak to someone like him. I, I just, I can't think that as a reporter, right? It's like, it's the argument, it's the same argument as why are, why are you going to a White House press briefing? They lie to you guys. Why even show up? Well, that's their fucking job to show up, right? There are all sorts of different, there are different ways to report, right? I'm not saying that it's better than investigative yep. journalism or it's better than any other type of journalism, but there's space for all of this. And even if uh, there are reporters who wouldn't talk to Roger Stone on principle, um, I don't think that us not talking to him makes him go away. Yeah, I think the performance aspect of it is is tricky. And I'm someone who does the versions of this stuff and I do this stuff on stage. And so it's uh, and I've had people on on it at events that people yell at me and say, I would never pay money to attend this. And I'm never going to mm-hmm. go back to this thing because you've had so and so on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's clear. And I'm happy to talk to you about it next time we chat. If we, but we keep we can keep going. I'm not trying to stop the conversation. No, no, no. I, I mean, I don't think I, I think it is clear that people don't go away if you don't speak to them, right? They Donald Trump would not um, not be president if mm-hmm. we did not show up and cover his speeches or try and ask him questions. Um, and I just I think that the idea that you can wish people away by not speaking to them is absurd. And I understand that people find Roger Stone, I mean, Roger Stone has literally threatened to kill me. He has certainly harassed me many times over the years. Um, it's, it does not mean that there is no value in speaking to him on the record in a transparent way where people can see it. And uh, I, I think that doing these things transparently what we can is the best way to do it. And I, I don't think um, that it is, I don't think that there's any reasonable argument that it is an endorsement to speak to someone like that and ask them questions about their history with Donald Trump. It just so happens that the people surrounding Donald Trump, like Donald Trump, are appalling, often racist, terrible people and criminals. Um, but that's that's not my fault. <laughs> right. And so those are the people that you have to talk to when you report on Donald Trump, because those are the people around Donald Trump. And that is Donald Trump. I'm very glad we continued this part of the conversation. Glad we got all of that out. Um, I think I agree with you. 
I'm still, I have some gray area, um, but I'll resolve that on my own time. I'm going to let you go. Thank you for all your great work. Thanks for making time for me today. Uh, Olivia, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring the show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.